This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Previously on the great James Bond car robbery. The car is an icon. The car was stolen in 1997 from an airport hangar in Boca Raton, Florida, and hasn't been seen since. They sliced through the molding on the hangar door, cut the metal latch, snipped the alarm wire. This was the first James Bond with gadgets. The DB5 was the queen of all gadgets. There is a six-figure reward being offered by the insurer. The one that really sticks in my head is when Bond says, an ejector seat? You're joking. And uh, now we're in a situation where the insurance company would like their car back. Welcome to the Great James Bond Car Robbery with me, Elizabeth Hurley. Episode 2, Under the Hammer. Friday, 27th of June, 1986, wasn't a big news day in America. The New York Times led on Reagan's announcement of another possible turning point in missile negotiations with the Soviets. The closure of an anti-Sandinista newspaper in Nicaragua was noted. But on the inside pages, there was a story from the auction house Sotheby's that might have caught the attention of Bond fans. New York Times, June 27th, 1986. Two James Bond cars from Goldfinger, a gingham pinafore worn by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz, and Charlie Chaplin's bowler hat and cane are among the movie memorabilia that will be auctioned tomorrow and next month in sales in New York and London. Both will be auctioned there tomorrow at the end of an all-day sale of collectibles that will include Hollywood props and costumes, rock and roll memorabilia. This auction is essential to our story. And in this episode, we'll be exploring how it places the most famous car in the world in an aircraft hangar in Florida in the first place and the clues that it offers about its current location. We'll also be investigating this car's mythology through the remarkably glamorous true-life story of the inventor of James Bond, author Mr. Ian Fleming. But first, back to New York in 1986. The two Bond cars up for sale are both from Goldfinger the movie. One is a stately pre-war vintage Rolls-Royce. In the film, it's driven by the evil henchman Oddjob as he chauffeurs his megalomaniac boss Goldfinger. It's a proper villain car. The other is the legendary Aston Martin DB5 itself, complete with gadgets. Other items up for sale in the auction include a seven-foot-long ornamental tiger, a selection of incredibly creepy Victorian mechanical dolls, and some antique teddy bears. It's a long way from the glamorous, dangerous world of Bond. But let's stop for a moment to think about this. In 1986, more than 20 years after Goldfinger, the DB5 is no longer the world's most famous car, it was too old to be cool and too recent to be retro. For a brief window in its history, it had perhaps dropped off the celebrity A-list. But two men do have their eyes on 007's wheels. In one corner, Stephen A. Greenberg. 
Stephen died in 2012, but at this point in the 80s, he's a known figure on the New York nightclub scene. Part of the outer reaches of Andy Warhol's orbit. He's also famous for only traveling in a chauffeur-driven limo, running up extraordinary restaurant bills, and sporting a mane of white bouffant hair that would make Trump jealous. You can see why an authentic Bond car might appeal. Years later, he's investigated by the SEC for insider trading. Facing off against him, and just as memorable, New Jersey-born Anthony Pugliese III. So Anthony Pugliese is a wonderfully charismatic man. Pugliese's lawyer, Greg Coleman. Mr. Pugliese himself declined our offer of an interview. Very intelligent, extraordinarily creative, and just a lot of fun to be around. Pugliese is another wealthy man, self-made with a background in construction. By the time of the auction, he's living in Florida, moving into real estate. He's a true entrepreneur in every sense of of the, the term. At this time, Pugliese is taking a big interest in morbid memorabilia. He's bought the pistol that President Kennedy's assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was shot with, and the ID tag tied to Oswald's corpse in the mortuary. He also seems to have an interest in mafia mythology. He buys an original fedora worn by Marlon Brando in The Godfather. He's one of the type of people that if you're having a dinner party uh, and you didn't feel like entertaining uh, the folks at your dinner table, all you would need is Anthony and you wouldn't have to say a word. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, 113 is the 1964 Aston Martin DB5 as featured in the film Goldfinger. Stunningly presented with fully functioning gadgets as used by James Bond himself. And we will begin this at $50,000. $50,000. That's about 120K in today's dollars. This is recreation, obviously. 50,000? 55,000 I have on my left, thank you. 60,000. $60,000. Picture it. Wall Street era New York. Gordon Gecko's stripy shirts and suspenders, brick-sized mobile phones waving in the air, all that money swirling around, trying to find a place to be conspicuous. Do I have 90,000? 90,000. 95, 95,000. I am bid here on my right. Early on, there's a lot of interest. 12 potential buyers or their agents raising their hands. 120,000 I have on the telephones. 120. Then something dramatic happens. The price doubles, then triples. The bids jump up in steeper increments now, 10,000 at a time. 160. Ladies and gentlemen, 170. 170. Just two bidders are left in the race now, Greenberg and Pugliese. Do I have $200,000 for this historic vehicle, ladies and gentlemen? $220,000. The Victorian toys and teddy bears are long forgotten. $250,000? Now, at $250,000, $250,000. I shall sell the car right here in front of me. I'm selling, make absolutely no mistake. It's going. Sold. James Bond's Aston Martin DB5 sold for $250,000, ladies and gentlemen. Won by Anthony Pugliese III. 
Photos show his brother-in-law, Robert Luongo, collecting the keys from the previous owner. He was the winning bid, $250,000, and then had to pay the auction fee, I think it was 10%. Greg Coleman, the lawyer again. Greenberg's response is not known. He did win the Goldfinger Rolls-Royce, a characteristically understated choice. Along with the Aston Martin DB5, Pugliese also won the razor-edged bowler hat that Oddjob uses as a weapon against Bond. Anthony has always been a collector, okay? He had always had a love uh, for movies. And although he had never really produced or directed a movie, he had the idea of spin-off movies of the James Bond uh, genre. And so he thought he could incorporate the DB5 into one of his movies. We can only imagine how those movies would have turned out. Like a young Joan Collins wandering onto the set of Miami Vice, we never got to see the DB5 driven by a secret agent with Ray-Bans and a pastel blouson jacket. In fact, Pugliese did go on to produce a number of low-budget thrillers and gangster movies in the 2000s. One of the most memorable, 2017's The Beautiful Ones, Chronicles the adventures of a handsome Italian-American mobster with a love for vintage sports cars and an obsession with 60s action heroes. As well as seducing the heroine and beating up bad guys, he breaks the fourth wall to let the audience know exactly how much he's paid to buy the same clothes and sunglasses as his movie heroes. Anthony himself makes a cameo as a crime family boss, Tony Romano, a.k.a. The Shark. In the movie's climax, he lights a cigar stares off into the distance and introduces himself. You know who I am? I'm Tony Romano, sometimes known as the Shark. I really don't like that nickname. I'm Italian, not a spick. Rando would be so proud. Meanwhile, the DB5 was proving to be an excellent investment. Interestingly, at about that time, the car collectible market went through the the sky. I mean, it just, for whatever reason, collectible cars became very, very, very desirable. The very, very desirable car was becoming a tourist attraction. As we heard last episode, it became a regular at car museums, exhibitions, even carnivals across the country. And Mr. Pugliese begins to think about protecting his investment. And so literally within a year or two of his acquisition of this car, he had it appraised and had it insured for $4.2 million. Yes, $4.2 million on a car bought for a quarter million, or roughly 16 times the original purchase price. Just unbelievable. The value went up that fast. So, you know, he'd done pretty well. Basically a $4 million plus or minus profit if he wanted to sell it, which he's not like that. He he doesn't buy these collectibles to sell. He, he just enjoys them. Pugliese bought it at auction for $250,000. And he starts on this campaign to increase its value. Mary Sealhorst, the museum curator we heard from last episode, She wrote about the disappearance of the DB5 for Motor Trend Classic magazine back in 2006. Later on, when I get asked to write this article about my involvement with this story, I called the guy who insured it. It was uh, Jim Grundy, 
well, I guess he owns Grundy Worldwide, which is an insurance agency. The car was insured through him. In fact, there seem to have been a number of appraisals done in the 1990s. And as far as we can tell, the appraised value moved up and down a few times with different insurers being involved. But at the time of the theft, $4.2 million was the figure it was insured for. And according to Mary, Jim Grundy was skeptical about the huge increase in value. So I called Jim and he's telling me about this. And he said the appraisal value isn't really based so much on the condition of the car. It's based on its movie fame. At any rate, Jim Grundy accepted the appraisal as the the value of the car. And he regretted doing that. I mean, he said that he made a mistake. We weren't able to agree an interview with Mr. Grundy, and he didn't respond to our written questions about the car. But Mary says he told her his concerns on the record, and he never disputed the quotes attributed to him in her article. You know, later, after the theft and everything, he said, you know, a half a million or even or one million would have protected the investment that Pugliese had made in this car. But he insured it for $4.2 million. We spoke to three other experts in the classic car world, all of whom were familiar with the state of the market at that time, and they all told a similar story. One said he thought that the DB5 would be insured for a, quote, much greater value than the actual worth of the car, unquote. Another said that it would have been very unlikely but not impossible to have sold the DB5 for $4.2 million at that time. The third told us that even though it was one of the most valuable cars in the world, he did not think it would have sold for close to $4.2 million. Whatever the car's true value at that time, after it was stolen, the insurance company investigated the theft and determined that it was covered under the terms of their policy. They paid out. How much? The insurance payout was $4.2 million. That's right. Anthony Pugliese was able to console himself over the loss of his bond car. His payout was nearly $4 million more than the price he paid at auction for the car. So, why does this matter, you ask? It matters because that multi-million dollar insurance payout became the spark of a deep, ongoing feud over who really had the right to say they owned the Goldfinger DB5. A feud involving lawsuits, jealousy, and even accusations of blackmail and extortion, and which may, according to some, throw a light on where the car is now. We'll be exploring that feud in a later episode, but for now, it's worth investigating how our car came to be so desired in the first place, to buyers, to insurers, and ultimately to the thieves at Boca Raton Airport in 1997. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Part of the myth, of course, lies in the films, but part of it goes back even further. Throughout this podcast, we'll be searching for the origins of that myth through the lives of some amazing people. 
Let's start with a former British naval intelligence officer turned author. A man who had his own complex relationship with cars. It's 1928. A beautiful hot summer night in the foothills of the Austrian Alps. And the peace of the country roads is being rudely disrupted by the racket of a motorcar driven at top speed heading south towards the ski resorts. It's a foreign car, British, driven recklessly by a young foreign man, also British. Ian Fleming is 20 years old and this car is his first. A khaki standard Tourer, the 1920s equivalent of a convertible. A real taste of freedom. That freedom did come at a price, as the Tourer gives almost no protection in the event of a crash. At this point, Ian has already been expelled from Eton, England's most prestigious boarding school. Partly because of this very car. Strictly against school rules, he kept her hidden near the grounds, allowing illegal late-night trips to London. There was talk of a girl, or girls, strictly forbidden too. He also failed at Sandhurst, Britain's most prestigious military academy for young officers. Same story, broken rules, a girl, and trips to London in the trusty standard Tourer. So now, he's in Austria as part of his last chance at a respectable future, attending an eccentric experimental academy in the Austrian Alps aimed at young men just like him, complex, gifted, wayward, and rich. Friends from that time tell of day trips in the Torah with Ian driving fast, entertaining them with wild stories of imaginary enemies chasing their vehicle through the Alpine roads. In one of these stories, he defeats the pursuers with a gun hidden in the exhaust pipe of the car. The first traces of a genuine 007 gadget car. But on this evening, so far as we know, Ian is alone, returning from Munich. Perhaps he doesn't know this part of the road that well. Or perhaps it's that by this time in the summer, the corner's grown so high along the road, you can't easily see the Munich to Kufstein trains approaching the level crossing just ahead. The crossing isn't the modern sort with barriers, and neither Ian nor the train driver spot the danger until it's far too late. It's a high-speed collision. The front of the standard Torah takes the brunt of the impact and it's instantly destroyed. Parts of its bodywork are dragged 50 yards along the track by the force of the blow. But miraculously, Ian steps out of the wreckage without serious injury. One writer has noted the presence of dangerous trains as a plot device in Bond novels. Ian's lifelong love of cars, however, is miraculously undiminished. I think he was probably quite an unpleasant person. This is Simon Winder, author of The Man Who Saved Britain, an examination of the meaning of Bond and Fleming. We knew we had to speak to him when we saw there was a DB5 on the cover. He was incredibly arrogant, very entitled, very selfish, but people seemed to take to him. People would do what he asked them to do. A useful talent to have, but for years, Fleming struggles to find an outlet for his abilities. And in spite of his storytelling in the Austrian Alps, he didn't begin writing secret agent novels filled with beautiful cars and beautiful women until much later, in middle age. 
his career is an interesting one. I mean, he came from a very a military family and he was always viewed as being very clever and very athletic, but he, he couldn't find a role in life, really. But he was part of that particular group of people for whom, in a weird way, the Second World War was a real blessing. Suddenly, there was a purpose, a reason to revel in danger. Suddenly, he had something he could do. And the sorts of qualities he had in peacetime, which were pointless, suddenly became quite valuable in wartime. Qualities such as imagination, daring, a certain blend of cruelty and cunning. Bond is, I think, a mixture of what Fleming would have liked to have been and the sort of people who he knew. Knew from his job as assistant to the director of naval intelligence in World War II, a spymaster. So there's a dash of Fleming because obviously Bond is in some ways quite posh. And he has this lovely little flat off the King's Road, and he has these high-end cars, none of which are really quite compatible with like civil service salaries. The war also exposes Fleming to the tools of espionage, more raw material for creating 007. He knew a lot about like all these funny tricks, you know, how to hide guns, knives and so on, how explosives worked. And he really knew about all that stuff. And he came up with loads and loads of schemes really, really quickly, right at the beginning of the war, how to get hold of decoding equipment, how to trick the Germans. He came up, for example, with the original idea, which was used later in the war, of dropping a corpse with fake secret plans on the corpse, which would make the Germans divert resources to the wrong part of Europe, and that sort of thing. And a lot of his plans were daft, but some of them really worked. For example? Well, there was one... Very ingenious thing. Quite a few German bombers were crashing in Britain and occasionally they'd land more or less intact. And what he wanted to do was rebuild one of them. One of Fleming's contemporaries in the intelligence service, Charles Fraser Smith, described this scheme in his eccentric memoirs, The Secret War of Charles Fraser Smith. He remembered the details of Fleming's idea. His plan was to make use of a serviceable German bomber. We had by then managed to obtain quite a few of these in working order as means of getting a hold of a German intelligence codebook. Fraser Smith frankly didn't like Fleming much, but he had to admit the man had charisma. Fleming was known to have great charm and persuasive powers as well as a highly tuned imagination. I was brought into this exploit at a fairly early stage. My task was to provide uniforms for the commandos. Stage one, refit a crashed German bomber train a British crew to fly it, and then have it take off and blend into a real German bomber squadron returning from a raid over Britain. The scheme Fleming proposed and almost put into operation involved flying the German plane back towards Germany with a real enemy bomber force returning from a raid of some British target. And then, as if commandeering Nazi bomber planes isn't dangerous enough... The Q plane would then apparently get into difficulties with fireworks igniting on the wings and fuselage to give the appearance of flames. It would come down in the channel, close to the German gun positions on the French coast. A fake crash landing. And a German air-sea rescue launch would, Fleming assumed, no doubt correctly, be put out at once to take off the crew. Fleming's specially trained commandos hidden aboard the bomber would then overpower them and seize their codebook intact. But someone pointed out that actually if you try and land a bomber in the channel, it would just sink immediately and drown everyone. So so that was never acted on, and they never tried it out. I don't doubt that Fleming was furious. We'll be hearing more from Charles Fraser Smith in the next episode, a fascinating man and another crucial figure in the evolution of the Goldfinger DB5. It was ridiculous. But it is funny how some of these things did really work. You know, his 
commandos looking out for archives and things like that really did grab a lot of stuff, which the Germans would otherwise have destroyed. And they were trained in safe breaking and things like that. So he was a useful figure in the war. And his boss in naval intelligence wound up being the model for M, for which we must all be grateful. So by the end of the war, Fleming has plenty of inspiration for Bond's life of espionage and deception. But a love of fast cars wasn't yet part of the 007 formula. He adored cars and he loved driving or motoring, as it was called in those days. Lucy Fleming is Ian Fleming's niece. She was a child when the Bond books first took off. Whenever he came to the house, the house kind of lit up. He was great fun and he always came in some car that he was terribly pleased with. When he set off up the drive, he used to spray gravel on the lawn, which annoyed the gardener very much. And I remember that. Nobody else in, in the family was very interested in cars except for me, so... I was the one who got taken for a ride quite often, which was fantastic. He liked them and I liked them, but he really liked them. In fact, Fleming got through quite a few motors. He had a lot of different cars. He, he had a khaki standard and then he had a khaki Morris Oxford. And then he had a Buick Sports Saloon. And then he had a 1680 Open Lagonda. And then he had a Graham Page convertible coupe. This is actually an abbreviated list. Then after the war, he had a Daimler convertible. And then he got a, a Lancia Grand Tourism. Tour, is that what it's called? He said it was like driving an angry washing machine. He even wrote a sort of love letter to the life of flashy cars and driving them in far-flung places. There's a 1958 magazine article called Automobilia. In it, he tells a story of an incongruous road trip that he took across Jamaica with the playwright Noel Coward. They had a great sort of teasing friendship. He says we went for a long ride along the coast road. We stopped for petrol. Fill her up, said Coward. There was a prolonged pause followed by some quiet tinkering and jabbering from behind the car. What's going on? They can't find the hole, said Leslie Cole from the rear seat. We've all had that trouble at one time or another, said Coward. Strangely, the published version of the piece omits that line from Coward. By this time, Fleming is one of the most successful novelists in the world, and his days of alpine car crashes and wartime plots are well behind him. But the route from his beloved standard tourer to the Goldfinger DB5 has a few more twists to come. For one thing, in the early novels, Bond doesn't even drive an Aston Martin. Instead, Fleming places him in a pre-war Bentley. A 1931 4.5-litre blower Bentley with an Amherst Villiers supercharger, to be precise. And Fleming always liked to be precise. It's a huge car that looks and sounds like a World War II fighter plane with the wings taken off. The driver sits in an open cockpit wearing goggles, obviously. It is, in its own macho way, a beautiful British car. But it's very much of an earlier era, closer to what Toad of Toad Hall might have driven than a Cold War super spy or a hero of the swinging 60s. Simon thinks that's no coincidence. Fleming's bond is a revenge of the 40s and 50s on the 60s and 70s. And so if people like Fleming were appalled by the way that Britain was no longer what it had been before the Second World War, they could see how little value Britain was given by the US or the Soviet Union, You know that the future clearly didn't lie with Britain. And so when Fleming was writing his books, a lot of it was a kind of British fantasy that he was a secret agent. He travels all over the world and solves things. He'll go to America and fix something the Americans can't fix. So Bond starts out as the voice of a generation, not of the baby boomers, but of their parents. 
those who remembered or fought in the war. There's a bit in Goldfinger where he talks about how you, you can only listen to the Beatles using earmuffs because the music's too noisy. You know, that's not really a very 60s thing to say. You know, he's really talking on behalf of the officer class of the 1940s and 50s. Fleming would never have been a great fit with peace, love and Woodstock. His drinking and heavy smoking and his fast cars and all the rest of it really, a lot of it came from the boredom of not not being in the war anymore. So for him, I suppose the idea was how do you make things exciting without the Second World War happening anymore? And I think that's what in the end made the book so fantastically successful was that this this was the common experience of millions of bored British and American men who found their day-to-day lives were just routine in the way that everyone's life is routine. Um, But that sort of moment in their lives when they've been doing something exceptional and exciting was suddenly brought back into shape by James Bond. So this figure was created really to show how secretly you could still have this kind of level of excitement. Fleming's switch from a pre-war Bentley to an Aston Martin actually took place in a surprisingly democratic way. Feedback from a fan. In 1957, a Dr. G.R.D. Gibson wrote to Fleming to express his enjoyment of the Bond novels so far. But he complained that vintage Bentleys are really a bit old-fashioned these days. His suggestion was an Aston Martin instead. Fleming wrote back, thanking him for the letter and promising that Bond was in the process of being re-equipped. When Goldfinger the novel came out two years later, 007 had taken Dr. Gibson's suggestion. Lucy Fleming has some of the original correspondence that followed. Dr. Gibson was delighted to see that Bond had graduated to an Aston Martin and enclosed a card for the Aston Martin Owners Club. I'm sure he would enjoy being a member of the AMOC, though I'm not so sure we would feel comfortable having him around. And then Ian wrote back, thank you very much for your splendid letter. This was in 1959 of June the 17th. And for your kind invitation for James Bond to join the AMOC. Since neither Bond nor his biographer are owners of an Aston Martin, I can do no more than pass your invitation on to the head of admin of the Secret Service, from whose transport pool the DB3 was drawn. As is right and proper. Whatever Bond gets up to in his Aston Martin, it remains the property of Her Majesty's Secret Service. And when it came to filming Goldfinger, a pre-war Bentley wasn't even considered. So without Dr. Gibson's fan mail, it's very possible Bond might still be driving something more appropriate to Downton Abbey. Another car would be the most famous car in the world, and another car would have ended up on the auction block at Sotheby's in 1986 and in the aircraft hangar at Boca Raton. Next time on The Great James Bond Car Robbery. Organized crime in South Florida is very unorganized. Unknown persons had cut the rubber molding on the hangar door and were able to reach in with some kind of hacksaw. You have to close your eyes and really just imagine paradise. And we'll be telling the story of the man who inspired Ian Fleming to put secret weapons and gadgets at the heart of Bond's world. I could supply completely edible paper, tough but palatable, so that a suspect could make a meal of his notes. That's all in episode three. That was The Great James Bond Car Robbery, Episode 2, brought to you by the Spyscape Podcast Network. The producers are Cup and Nuzzle. Disclaimer, The Great James Bond Car Robbery is not affiliated with Eon Productions, Metro-Golden-Mayer Studios, Inc. or Danjack, LLC. 
Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.